Hi, this is Carol Steves, and you're listening to Reality Ranch Podcast. Today is April 24th, 2020. So in my last podcast, I talked about the wearing of masks during the coronavirus pandemic and my confusion and confusion I see with other people on what is appropriate for protection and what isn't. And since then, I have uh, revised my thinking a little bit on what the mask wearing um, I'm understanding that even if the masks provide limited protection, it does create a feeling of security in people and probably also helps the security of other people observing other people wearing masks. But at the same time, it's also creating as I said last time, a a false sense of security and people become careless in their thinking that if they're wearing a homemade cloth mask or something that's untested, that they can get as close to other people as they like. So this is a real, a really complicated issue. Who, Who would have ever thought that? And that people may not be putting them on properly, taking them off properly wearing them when they don't need to. I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Um, I didn't get much feedback on that issue. So I've just been reading what other people are posting. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was the attitude of 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 others it, when you decide to discuss negative information like the coronavirus pandemic, or if you wanted to, if you bring up uh, the possibility of civil war in the United States, or if you talk about the dangers of radiation from cellular devices. For some reason, people assume that you are afraid if you bring these, 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 um, negative subjects up. And that isn't necessarily the truth. Now, some people probably are afraid when they bring these these uh, subjects up, but not everyone. And, and speaking for myself, I'm one of those people. I don't feel fear when I... T- I feel concern, but I don't feel afraid because I know being afraid really doesn't do me any good. Now... If I am uh, on the uh, on the on the subject of fear, I'd like to recount a story about a time when I was genuinely afraid, and it was recently, last fall, when Bill and I and a friend of ours were in Ure, Colorado. It's a beautiful place. I highly recommend once you're able to travel safely up there that you visit if you live in the area. And there's the sky, uh, I think it's called the um, 
New Mexico Skyway, or it's the Colorado Skyway, something like that. I, I call it the highway to hell. Um, it's uh, very narrow. It's considered, I think, the most dangerous highway in the United States. And the name of the name exact name is slipping my mind, but I, I want to say it's called the Skyway. It's very narrow, and there's no guardrails, and it winds around the side of the mountain. It is truly terrifying. And it's funny because the night before we decided to go that direction just to take a drive, we started kind of up that way, and I suddenly had this strong urge to. And I told Bill, let's not go up there. Let's turn around. As we were looking for our, our uh, lodgings. We couldn't find them. We hadn't found them yet. And I really didn't want to go past the outskirts of town. It really uh, bothered me. I, I just felt this doom. And so I thought, how silly of me. What is this all about? So we turned around and we found we finally found our lodgings in a few minutes. But the next day we took a drive up there and we stopped in one little point and we were going to head forward and it was daylight and I still felt that sense of foreboding, but I thought, oh, I need to quit being silly. I don't know, you know, why am I feeling this way? And then we ended up on that road and it, I don't know how Bill kept us cool. I was so frightened. I was sweating. I stayed really quiet, but I kept, I said to him, as soon as you can turn around, please do so. I was so scared. So he did. He got up to the top and turned around and went back down. And that was just as scary as going up. And literally, every time I thought about driving on that road for a several weeks, I would feel that fear again. And just that breakout into a sweat, kind of PTSD, reliving the moment. And, and I thought, this is so interesting how much that frightened me. Yet, I didn't really talk about that much with anyone. I just processed it, and now, you know, I feel very little uh, emotion when I, when I think about it now, but a little. So, back to talking, when we're talking about these negative things that can happen, that are happening in the world, or like climate destruction. I feel alarmed. I feel... Um, very concerned. I feel sad, but I don't feel fear. And I think when we bring these, these subjects up, I know when I bring them up, it is not to trigger fear in other people. I would not want to do that. Um, I want though, my, my intention is for them to, to pay, to notice what's happening and to hopefully look for the truth in what I in, in the information that is being provided by me and others. So right now there's a lot of of um, polarity over whether or not the United States should should um, open up um, and get back to business, regular business, not that it can be regular. And there's a lot of anger on both sides. The people who feel, which I'm understanding, is actually the majority of the people in our country are feeling it's too soon, are making the people that think we should open it up now and is overblown very angry. And 
I've had to, I've had a couple of instances where um, people have actually lashed out at me simply because I am pointing out how idiotic it is that we risk our health over this very serious pandemic and go back to work. And instead, I really think our governments should be helping the people get through this financially and providing what we need and making it easier for those who have to work to to keep the food supply and the energy sector and um, medical and so forth um, going, if there's not a bunch of people out running around, these people are not going to be in in danger the way they they are going to be. I mean, they're still taking risks, no doubt. But now they're going to have to try to avoid all these people who are out running around. And I, and I get the impression that people think that um, the pandemic is almost over, that this portion of the people who want to get back to work. Or is it that they don't care if some people die, if, as long as it is, 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 as it isn't them? And so it worries me that we can't talk about this without... Um, creating uh, without unpeace being created and it, it, it makes me want to bring up the subject of the peace meditation and how important it is that those of us who are either acquainted with Figu or part of Figu are practicing this meditation once a month on a Saturday and a Sunday with, believe it or not, extraterrestrials outside of our sphere. And the, the peace meditation is actually a chant uh, that's repeated over and over again. It's uh, an, old, an old Lyrian which I guess has a relationship to German. And it is repeated over and over again, either out loud or silently. Uh, This is something that my husband Bill and I and my son Colin do as, as regularly as we can remember to. There are times we forget. We also do it in our Colorado study group. And what we do is repeat Salome Gamnan Ben Urda Ganiber Asala Hesporuna. And we say, and this translates into English as peace be on earth and among all created creations. And so hopefully more and more people will think about peace. And as they watch people die during this pandemic and understand that the decisions that we are making is going to cause more people to die if we 
move around and move about out into the countryside. That they don't direct their anger at others and take responsibility if they're one of those people who has decided that it's not that important, that it's overblown. In the spring of 1984, the Figu members in Switzerland began meditating with the so-called peace meditation. Organized by our extraterrestrial friends from the Playaris, this peace meditation was intended to initiate a turn for the better in terrestrial humankind's future. The intent was that through the emission of powerful and logical impulses, a positive polarity can be forged to counteract the negative force field surrounding the earth much like a huge bell, which influences the terrestrial population and all nature. This negative force field was established and continues to be entrenched by several centuries of religious sectarian, extremist, and deteriorated terrestrial human thinking. To reverse this negative energy, therefore, the concept has been to produce dynamic counter-impulses, which the extraterrestrials would send to Earth via a telemeter disk hovering high above the Samyasi Silver Star Center located in Hinterschmidruti, Switzerland. Coupled with some other devices and the assistance of over 3.5 billion humans within the Playaren Federation, we at FIGU have since discovered that by initiating this action, the concept has obviously proven to be successful. Since terrestrial humankind, for better or worse, is accountable for its own condition as well as for that of the planet, it is accountable also for the healing process. Anyone can participate in the meditation who possesses a clear material consciousness, which must not be impaired by drugs, alcohol, or a severe psychological illness. It is imperative that the decision to participate in the peace meditation is completely voluntary. Participants say a child, for instance, must not be commanded into joining. As soon as a child is old enough to comprehend the issues and only if the child is willingly and voluntarily requests to participate. Each peace meditation session lasts 20 minutes and can take place and takes place on the first and third weekends of the month. Target day is always the first Saturday of the month. My guest today is Patrick McKnight. Patrick is a FIGU passive member and the administrator of the Creational Truth website, a website dedicated to the dissemination of information related to FIGU and its various groups. Patrick lives in the southwestern United States and has dedicated much of the past 10 years to translating information from the original German and building this impressive website. Let's go now to my conversation with Patrick, recorded earlier this week. The 
Creational Truth website. Um, and I've known Patrick, I don't know, how long have I known you, Patrick? Since, well, since 2011. Okay, so it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Patrick and I met when we attended the uh, Arizona October meetings. Is that, oh. Isn't that correct? Yeah, see, October yeah. 2011. Yeah, see. okay, great. Yeah, looking at the picture here, that's, haven't seen that in a while. So um, I am interested, and I think other people would be interested in hearing about how you um, found the, the mission and spiritual teaching, and oh. when. Okay, that goes back uh, quite a ways. Um, I, actually, I'm going to go back even further than that. Um, I was brought up in a in a a home where my mother was a strict Catholic, my father was a thirty second degree Mason, um, and they made an agreement that we they would bring us up as as Catholics until we decided otherwise. So it. Let me got, ask you a question before you now. Sure. Uh, you said your mom, your mother was a Catholic, and your father was a thirty second degree Mason. Yes. Is that a religion? It is a, I don't know if you'd call it a religion, it's a, it's still a belief system, I think. And it's, okay. I never got too much into that either. And I'm sure there's, there's people that, that are Masons or. So you're talking about the Masonic Lodge? Yes. So your father wasn't a Catholic, but he was part of the Masonic Lodge? Correct. Okay, go ahead. Um, so at some point, um. I got really into the religion. We, I was doing, uh, back when I was real young, I was doing uh, weekend, weekends of Christian challenge where I'd, I'd, uh, I'd get into doing talks about specific subjects. And it got to the point where, uh, because my dad was, uh, he also had worked for, he was in the Air Force when my mother and him got married. So we traveled all over the world. My, my, I've got brothers that were born in France. My little sister was born in Canada. Um, we were all over the place. But my dad was into the Minuteman II missile maintenance. So he got me into the space program, interested in it. And it's something that I got into on my own. I used to I remember all the Gemini missions. I was cutting out all the newspaper articles and creating these, uh, you know, uh, uh, Books, books of of articles. Um, some point in time, I started questioning uh, the Catholic religion, and started checking out other religions just to see what they were about. And basically, that's when I came came to the conclusion they were all the same thing. They were all ex basically explaining the same thing, but using different terms. And it was really weird because when I finally talked to my priest about it, he told me a lot of what I understood they don't isn't really public, but it's something that they learn in their in their studies. Um, so basically, I gave up the Catholic religion and decided that uh, all this information we were. This that's when I first started getting into to. UFOs and extraterrestrials, because I figured they are the ones that have been sharing this information with us um, in the in, in through history. Mm -hmm. um, 
a strange thing was in junior high school, I was asked um, for the first time in my life, someone asked me, I think it was one of the school counselors, what my long-term goals were. And no one had ever asked me that before. I answered him with, I have three goals. And at the time, it was step aboard a spacecraft. Number two is bring back the information. And three was share it. Share the information. And, and, and how so, did you react to that? <laughs> well, it was just a chuckle more than anything. But they accepted what I felt was my long-term goals. Okay. From then on, I started going to bookstores, the old bookstores, uh, collecting every book I could on UFOs, trying to find a real one um, as far as a real case. Right. Well, that went on and on. Um, I graduated from high school, started working with this concert sound company, and started touring all over the United States uh, with groups, everybody from Pat Boone, Lawrence Welk, to Jethro Tull and Journey. Um, but one particular show uh, we had was in Arizona. It was the Arizona Sounds. It was a bunch of groups um, that had, uh, there was a contest um, in Arizona for the best groups in Arizona. And we ended up doing a show there. It was like 13 set changes in one day. It was an outdoor concert with the sound company that was working. And that's when I met Jim Delatosa. Um, he was, somehow he got roped into promoting the show. Anyway, we started this conversation about UFOs and ended up, after the concert was over, we spent three more days with him going through uh, copies of contact notes that he got from Wendell Stevens. Now, can and, you explain who Jim Delatoso is to us? Um, Jim Delatosa has been involved in like the uh, the photo analysis of some of Billy's photographs, um, and he's been working with, uh, pretty closely with Wendell for a long time on uh, verifying the information that that Wendell was bringing back from from Switzerland about Billy Meyer. That um, at that point, once I went through through those. Uh, those contact notes that, that uh, Jim had from Wendell is, well, let's see, when, when, that was the summer of 1979. Um, and I decided, well, goal, long-term goal number one and long-term goal number two were already taken care of by somebody else. So everything right. as far as stepping aboard spacecraft and bringing back the information Billy had already done that, and this was the case I was going to investigate for, for from then on, mm -hmm. because I still had that third goal of sharing the information. So one of the things uh, at the time while I was working for the sound company was deciding that computers, this was, uh, well, 79, 1980. I quit working for the sound company in 1980 and started working for Digital Equipment Corporation as a technician. I, I had taken, uh, uh, I took uh, some classes at the local community college, what they called computer electronics at the time, and it was starting at basics. I mean, where AND gates, NAND gates, it was digital logic um, that you learned how to, how to create drivers for things like uh, keyboards and how to pass that information to monitors and 
Um, and then I applied for a job with Digital Equipment Corporation and got hired as a technician. Um, from then on, it went for 18 years working for Digital Equipment Corporation. Um, the last five of those was, well, I'm back up here. One of the things as a technician, I got into the training department as a technical trainer and then became a new products technical trainer. They'd sent me to Massachusetts to learn from the design engineers how the products work and I'd come back and teach the technicians and engineers what they were going to be testing as far as the new products. And got to the point where I was doing so many products at once I'd start mixing the products up. So I changed the whole thing and for digital in Albuquerque, um, we set up uh, a recording, basically a recording studio. So we'd bring the engineers to Albuquerque the uh, week before our first product builds and have them teach the technicians and engineers, record the whole thing and use that for ongoing training for uh, field engineers and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I uh, got into the IT department and started working with a, a digital group in France to automate the data center and came up with all kinds of things that um, basically we automated our data center. The only people that went into our data center were the people who were changing the, the tapes for offsite storage because we wanted to make sure we had backups that went off-site in case something happens to the data center. Well, then all kinds of companies started sending their representatives to, to our plant to see how we did the Lights Out data center. And then uh, it got to the point where they took me and made me a consultant and started sending me all over the United States to teach them how to do it for themselves. Uh, I spent nine months in uh, what was it, uh, in California, in Napa Valley, when uh, Apple first moved their corporate data center from Cupertino to Napa, helping them automate it, their data center. Um, there were a bunch of different companies. Finally, the last five years, it was only supposed to be for a month or two. Um, I got a call one Sunday that I had to go to Washington, the state Washington, Mm -hmm. to Redmond, Washington, to help them set up something, a new project they wanted to do. Um, and they wanted the help automating that. So at the time it was called, uh, well, when I got there, we went to Building 11 in, uh, in uh, Microsoft's corporate, uh, well, their corporate data center, Building 11, I think it was. Um, and in the back of their corporate data center, there was a lab set up with eight servers. And each of the servers was named after a Marvel uh, comic book character. Well, the pro project was Marvel Online Services, and they called it MOS. And that was back when there were all dial-ups. The internet wasn't used yet. So what I did was um, basically help them set up and automate Marvel Online Services. So when Bill Gates finally introduced it, um, it went for a year as online, an online service where you had to do the dial-up modems. They had this network set up around the world. And what I did was, um, from that point, everything started switching over to internet. 
Um, this was in 94, I think, is when I first went up there. Um, and ended up spending the next five years automating from what went from Marvel Online Services to MSN um, when everything converted over to the internet. And we went from those eight systems to several thousand systems um, in their corporate data center. Uh, I don't know if it was several thousand, maybe that's too much. A little over, uh, somewhere between a thousand and two thousand systems in this massive data center. Um, and I, that five years I spent up there, all my stuff was still in Albuquerque. I was up there, uh, digital was paying for my hotel room, all my, all my expenses. So you're living there. in a hotel room for five years? Well, it got to the point where they were renting apartments for me. Okay, because that's good. Um, and I, I got kind of burned out on that because I, it started out, I'd come home every three weeks, then every, it got, and that extended out to once every three months and it's, all my stuff was still, my car, my, everything of mine was in Albuquerque. Right. So I, um, asked digital to transfer me to Washington and just have me move there. Um, and they refused to do it. They didn't want to do it. So I, uh. Over one week, I quit working for digital and started working directly for Microsoft and spent another five years working directly for Microsoft as a, as a part of their, uh, what did they call it, uh, premier support services. They put me in charge of all the GE corporate accounts and I had to help GE corporate uh, utilize all of Microsoft's services. So I spent some traveling doing that too. Um, and then I got uh, to the point where I didn't have any life anymore. I was on full time on call uh, and got so burned out. There was, there was no personal life. So I basically decided it was time to leave Microsoft. And at the time, my parents were getting pretty old. So it's, I came back to Albuquerque and wanted to spend time with them. Um, and I guess it was about, oh, about six or seven years after that, I decided, well, it was time. And all this time, I'd still been getting into all the, this, the figure information and in 19, no, it was 2000, uh, 2010 when I decided, okay, it's time to go full-time with this stuff and became, became a figure passive member. And I was kind of bummed out because at the time, the, uh, the Landesgruppe for the United States required that a figure passive member had to be a figure passive member for two years before they could join the Landesgruppe. Right. So That's I, the thing I dealt with, you know, because I became yeah. a member in 2009. And same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I got kind of frustrated. And by the time, uh, when was it? October, I think, of 2011 was when the uh, figure disbanded the U.S. figure Landis Group. Well, in October, we had uh, our a meeting in Prescott. That was that uh, thing where we got together in October of 2011. Yep. 
Christian uh, Frenner uh, uh, came to help us decide what we were going to do to support FIGU ongoing. And that's when we started our group. Uh, uh, originally, it was called, uh, what was it? Uh, toward the, no, before that, I can't remember. Exactly. What do you, what do you, um, you mean the, the creative, creational truth? Well, before it was creational truth, it was two it other was, things. It was, um, let's see, I'm trying to remember what they, what we called it. Boy, it slipped in my mind. Um, we called it something else. Oh, you know what? I, I've, got it, I've got it written down here. Okay. Um, but, yeah, as you know, I was at that meeting with you. Right. And you and I were actually the two people that were saying, hey, we'll do whatever we need to do, you know, to get this going. Uh, I mean, other people were in agreement, but we were agreeing to kind of spearhead this and just try to keep everything going, you know. Right. And um, because, uh, you know, I, I don't know about you, I, I didn't want that it to die. I right. Wanted, I was the same. Yeah. Well, I was just getting started <laughs> because yeah. I, had my, I still had my third goal, which was share all this information. Right. And, and same, with, same with me. I was just getting going. I spent the last two years or so researching, had just been to, to Switzerland. And so I, you know, felt the same way you did. And uh, so you're looking at what the old names were. Yeah. <clears throat> it was like one yeah. was toward the truth, but before toward that. The truth. Yeah, that's the one I could think of, but I wasn't sure I was right about that. Uh, and there was another the one. Yeah, there was there another was one. Another. Um, can you hold on one second? Uh, can you put it on sure. pause for a second? I, I got up. And then we went to, no, toward the truth. Yeah, it was toward the truth. It was, uh, um, because and, we didn't have anything before that. Right. Yeah. Um, and that name, uh, we ended up losing because the member didn't want, uh, the member that got it, didn't want to share it. Right. I remember. Uh, yes. I remember that. So that's when we <clears throat> became uh, creational truth. Mm -hmm. And then from there, um, Figu, Figu started the thing about the, uh, uh, the uh, interest groups. So we right. initially uh, became, I, I forgot what the first one was, uh, United States Online. Uh, it wasn't figure interest group for mission knowledge. No, um, it wasn't. Anyway, they, uh, that's where we ended up was going well, to. The, you know, the story behind that, don't you? Um, the story, the, the story by behind how it became, we got the interest, interest in group designation. It's kind of no, interesting. If you don't know it. Okay. So when, um, we decided in Colorado when Reb, Rem Robinson, I went to him and said, hey, you know, you want to just far, form our own little, you know, study group here, informal kind of thing. And he said, sure. So we decided um, that we, we kind of wanted to, because we knew we were going to start doing, probably doing information stands. So we um, approached Figu with a name, you know, we, we bought the website, uh, name Colorado for Figu. And then we, Rem drew a little logo 
of the Rocky Mountains with a little spaceship flying over it. Because yeah. we said, hey, we wouldn't mind having some kind of logo because we weren't anything official. So we sent that to Christian and um, Christian sent it to uh, or t- took it to Billy. And they actually the group sent it to gave it to Pata. <laughs> and they took it to their council, the group that overlooks the, you know, the whole Figu mission. I can't remember the name of it. It starts with the G. Do you remember the name of that? what they call their group. Um, um, it starts with the G. That's that's all I can remember. But anyway. Yeah, yeah I know what the, you're talking about. But. Yeah, we get this. I'll, I'll have to look it up so I can mention what, what, what it's called because it's kind of interesting. But they, to our surprise, we got this email from Christian saying, um, actually, the play Aaron looked at your, your logo and they discussed it. <laughs> we were kind of like, okay. And um, what they have decided is you you can uh, we are going to allow you to use the Figu logo, and um, these are the conditions. There were you know there weren't many conditions, no advertising that kind of thing, and just the normal conditions. And um, you can call yourself an interest group, and that's how the interest groups were formed. So I thought that was kind of an interesting little. Yeah background on why the interest groups they decided to form something that wasn't as official and didn't have as many rules as the study group um, to allow people to um, operate under kind of more loosely under the figo umbrella with a few conditions so right um i've actually on the, on the website under uh, library reference material mm-hmm there's a, let me see if this is coming up here, reference material. Yeah, it's got the, like the, well, the guidelines for interest groups. Right. And then the organizational change for interest groups. So that mm-hmm. that was what they put together as far as the, it was kind of like the statutes, uh, except it right. was just, just for interest groups. Yes. Um, they've got the same thing, guidelines for study groups also, mm-hmm. and the national groups. Um, and, that, and this is on your website. You're talking about on the Creational Truth website. Right. And it's under right. the library reference material and it's under Figu Society. So there's there's all okay. kinds of reference material on here. But that that's where it basically um, where all all the different interest groups uh, were based on. Is that information that you got set up that mm-hmm. um, Christian yeah, got just... hold of us and told us the same thing that we need to change right. your name and. Now, one of the things about that, and we got some pushback initially, because we were an online group, um, and a lot of the members that we had at the time were all over the United States, we couldn't designate one specific place. So we got permission to actually, and Christian helped us come up with a name, it's mm-hmm. United States Online figure right. group instead of just being a location it's online the, the location was online is the way we we uh, presented it mm-hmm. um, and they agreed with us to go ahead and use that um, so that's how we became the group that we are now the United States online figure interest group uh, for mission advice and or the United States online figure interest group for mission knowledge right now, some of the things that uh, from the beginning, uh, from that first meeting that we had in October 2011, 
um, we had under study group uh, archives, we've got all the meetings recorded from back into, I think our first study group meeting was actually in 2012, February of 2012. So these were initially just audio recordings. Um, every month since then, mm -hmm. uh, the things that we, we got into studying, uh, well, uh, we had been uh, working on uh, Translating books is what we wanted to do next. Uh, right. Study groups because we were just a little confused at keeping track of where we were going with uh, what we were studying before, and and had asked Christian, well, look, we want to start translating one of Billy's books, and we're looking for something that will be good for a study group. Well, well, uh, Billy had just released the teaching script for the teaching of truth, teaching spirit, teaching of life uh, mm -hmm. book. And he suggested we use that. So we started back in September of 2012 translating that uh, for our study group meetings. And originally, that's all we could have uh, shared with was our study groups. Well, that changed um, at some, let me see what point was, uh, sorry, let me get around here. Um, uh, it was in March of 2016, we got permission from Billy and the core group to share our translations with all U.S. Vigu Passit members, um, not just our study group. So that's when we started getting people to register on the website as U.S. Vigu Passit members. Uh, one of the requirements they had was that we uh, get the registration of a Vigu Passit member confirmed by Figu. So we'd send them the information that people would send us um, as far as their membership and to FIGU, and they would confirm it or not confirm it um, right. as far as being active FIGU passive members. Well, then it uh, spread a little bit more because uh, FIGU Australia uh, had requested access to those. They found out about our translations and requested access. So the core group decided that we could share that also with uh, the FIGU passive members of FIGU Landis Group Australia. And then Canada also got permission, let's see, that was February of 2017. And then in April of 2017, uh, Christian let us know that that was extended to uh, FIGU Landis Group of Canada. Mm -hmm. um, so once we finished that book, um, we started on our next book, and that was in March of 2017. We were given permission to start uh, uh, another book. And this was one, uh, at the time we, had, uh, as a group, we had talked about it and Billy had said in one of his contact, or in one of his, I don't know if it was an article or a contact, mm -hmm. uh, that people needed to understand dying and death, um, rebirth and- right. So we decided that's the next book that we were going to start translating and got permission from FIGU in March of 2017 to start translating that under the same conditions as the previous book, The Teaching Script. Uh, well, last month, uh, or the month before that, we finally finished the translation of that book, and now we're working on the third book that we've got permission um, to translate. Now, these translations, again, are only we're only allowed to share them with figure passive members, U.S. figure right. passive members. 
Uh, yeah, so so let me make a distinction here for people who are listening and maybe don't quite understand the context. So these there are translations that are done that are official Figu translations, and they these books have been printed and anyone can buy them. And then there are you've also done translations, haven't you, of newsletters, the different articles, the uh, newsletters that are well. Do you do those? Still do those anymore? Yeah, it's basically what. Um, let me. I'll just go. I'll cover that uh, as okay. we go through these different sections of the the website. Okay. Uh, but anyways, so the, just to give context, though, so the sure. the translations you're talking about are books that have not been translated officially and put out for publication your group is translating these in internally and they're available to passive members only correct okay uh, at so some point ahead. in time uh, and and the primarily the reason for that is um only a, a figulandis group can of uh, officially publish translated right. books right correct um michael horn has permission to publish um, information, but it's right now it is his information, the stuff that he puts together, his videos and, and right. whatever he puts together. Um, now, there's a possibility in the future, once we get a figure landis group, that all these books will be able to be translated uh, or, or rather published uh, right. for the public. Okay. But we don't have permission to do that because we are not a figure landis group and one doesn't exist for the United States yet. Right. So that's another thing that we're trying to put together as a group is is uh, get all the figure landis uh, the figure passive members together to form that landis group. group. And we've been trying that. Um, there was a seven year because of figure. Uh, uh, let me get in here. Well, when when they dissolve a group, that you have to wait seven years. Correct. And, and, and that, once yeah, yeah, and that's just the you know. It's part of the figure statutes. Right, exactly. Okay, so the so seven it, years are up, right. as we know. Yeah. And that was and, up in 2016, I think it was. Uh, yeah. 2017, some mm -hmm. 2016. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, anyway, so after the seven years, um, I mean, we were still going as a, as a group, but we're now we're trying to get everybody back together as uh, to start planning a figure passive uh, uh, Landis group, well, a study groups and and one Landis group for the United States. Then we'll be able to uh, actually publish some of these books. Um, what I want to go through now is basically uh, what's available on the website um, because there's quite a bit, and it's from from the outside you can't really see how deep uh, of the information goes. Patrick, so, uh, give, before you start, keep going, um, sure. give the website address for people. So they may want to look it up while they're listening to the podcast. Sure. It's creationaltruthoneword.org. Okay. So, Pretty easy. All yeah. the normal spelling, correct? You know, right. Just, yeah. Okay. So go uh, ahead. Okay. So basically from the homepage, if you uh, go to creationaltruth.org, and basically, uh, it explains who we are, the United States Online Figure Interest Group for Mission Knowledge. Um, the first section here uh, is just a breakdown of the four main topics that Figu covers in their website. Um, 
so it'll it'll change between those. You can just click on like Figure Society, um, Spiritual Teaching, Ufology, and Overpopulation are the four main ones. Um, and what we've done is added another section just called the, the library, the reference library. So basically this website was set up so people could go to it and study on their own uh, this information that was being released by, by FIGU, which was, again, my third goal, sharing the information. So basically that's... There's actually more to my interview with Patrick McKnight. He goes more in depth into the website and um, actually does screen sharing and, and walks us through uh, all the robust features of this of his of the Creational Truth website. And we we have that on film. So as soon as I can get my YouTube link to work, I will be posting that on my YouTube channel. Until then, uh, I'll see you next week when I'm going to be delving more into the spiritual teaching. Until then, Salome. Salome.